morning we come to what I think for many of us is a very familiar story, the baptism of Jesus. So our goal this morning is to cover just two verses, uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. And so I'm going to start by reading the passage out loud, and then we're going to talk about what it means and how we can apply this narrative to our lives. Uh, The verses are going to be on the screen, but I think it's best if you have a Bible open in front of you and you follow along in that way. So hear the word of the Lord. This is from Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Father, we give you all the glory and praise because you are worthy of all the glory and praise. Help us, Lord, to know you better through your word so that we might rightly worship you. Pray for myself that I would be clear and understandable, even in difficult concepts, and that I would only say that which is helpful for your people. Pray for those who are listening. I pray for those who are tempted to zone out because they think they know the story already or those who are prone to distraction, I pray that you would grant to us all a humility to receive your word and a focus and a concentration to fix our attention in this hour. Father, let the seed of your word not fall on the hard path that the evil one might snatch it away or fall on rocky ground where it takes no root or even fall among thorns that it might be choked out by the cares of the world. But we ask that it would fall on good soil and that as a result it would produce an abundant harvest for your glory. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Amen. Well, those of you who have been coming regularly, you'll know that we've been going through the Gospel of Luke since last November, and this is our 15th sermon in this book. Uh, But really, if you think about it, the only story uh, that we've covered so far in which Jesus, uh, who is of course the main subject of this book, uh, in which Jesus has played an active role is that one narrative from the end of chapter 2 when he was 12 years old. The rest of chapters 1 through 3 have basically been about two things. One is, it's a lot of people saying things about Jesus, uh, from the angel Gabriel to Zechariah to the multitude of the heavenly host to Simeon to Anna. And then it's been the life and the ministry of the one who was to go before Jesus, John the Baptist. And so the past two Sundays, we've looked at verses 1 through 20 of chapter 3, and we saw how John, as the forerunner who was to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God— in preparation for Jesus, how he was in the wilderness baptizing people to get ready for the Messiah. John came, look at verse 3, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll remember that John's baptism was similar to many of the ceremonial washings that we see in the Old Testament uh, when the people would prepare to meet God. 
Like in Exodus chapter 19, right? God's about to give the Israelites the law and he says, consecrate the people and let them wash their garments and be ready. That washing was a symbolic acknowledgement that they were unclean because of their sin. And because of their sin, they could not, apart from God's mercy, be in his presence. And John's baptism is really picturing the same thing. And so people would come to John in repentance, confessing their sins, uh, desiring to turn away from their sin and towards God, and John would baptize them as a picture of that cleansing that they need and pointing them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He who is mightier than I is coming. He is going to baptize you with a greater baptism. Which brings us to our passage for today, where John the Baptist and Jesus, they come together in one scene as John baptizes Jesus. Now, interestingly, if you scan your eyes through verses 21 and 22, you'll notice that John's actually not mentioned there at all, either by name or even by pronoun. It just says, when Jesus also had been baptized, and it's obvious from the context that he was baptized by John, right, the subject of the previous 20 verses. But it's like Luke goes out of his way to keep John's name out of this baptism narrative. I think the reason's pretty simple. Look back at verses 19 and 20. We covered those verses about how John gets locked up uh, by Herod last week. Well, clearly those verses are out of chronological order, right? John must have baptized Jesus before he got locked up. But Luke gives us the end of John's ministry, right? His imprisonment, first, as if to finish the story of John the Baptist, so now he can focus entirely on Jesus, If you've been with us since the beginning of the book, you'll know that Luke's kind of been going back and forth and back and forth between John and Jesus and John and Jesus. Well, from here on now, from here on out, the gospel is going to be entirely about Jesus. John's done his job as far as Luke's concerned. He has gone before Jesus. He's pointed everyone to Jesus. And now he fades into the background so that Jesus can take center stage. He must increase and I must decrease. So Luke doesn't even mention John's name here. But as we think about what happens in these verses, in one sense, our passage this morning is pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy to understand the facts. Like the who, the what, the where, the when. Those are pretty simple. Who? Well, John the Baptist. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. What? Well, Jesus is baptized by John. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, and the Father speaks. Where? Well, in the Jordan River, as Matthew tells us. And when? Well, the verse tells us when all the people were baptized, referring to the multitudes going out to John. Well, in the midst of them, Jesus comes up to be baptized. Like the who, the what, the where, and the when, that's pretty simple. But where we need to give this narrative some deeper thought is in the whys. Like why is Jesus baptized? Why does the Holy Spirit descend on him? 
And why does God the Father say what he says to him? So that's where I want to devote our attention today. We're going to try to answer those three questions. Why was Jesus baptized? Why does the Holy Spirit descend on him? And why does God the Father say what he says to him? And hopefully in answering those questions, we'll get a better understanding of Jesus and his mission. So let's start with question number one. Why was Jesus baptized? I mean, think about this. Why in the world would Jesus, the perfect son of God, undergo John's baptism? A baptism that we were earlier told was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's a really good question. And we know it's a really good question because John the Baptist has the same question. It's like when you're sitting in science class and everybody's confused. And we've all got the same question, but nobody wants to raise their hand and look like a dummy. But then the smartest kid in the class asks the question that everybody's been thinking. And we're all like, oh, okay, good, good. John the Baptist is the smartest kid in the class. He's been sent as the forerunner to the Messiah. But even he is confused. Look at Matthew's account of the baptism. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 and following. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Like when John realizes what's happening here, that Jesus, the Messiah, is standing in front of him to be baptized by him, he is confused. Me? Baptize you? No, you're greater than me, and your baptism is greater than mine. Are we not getting this the other way around? I'm the sinner here. You're the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Shouldn't you be baptizing me with the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? So why is Jesus being baptized? Well, one thing that we can immediately rule out is that Jesus himself was repenting of sin. Well, we know from the Bible that he was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, Hebrews 7.26. Like he never once committed a sin. And proof of that fact is his resurrection. The fact that the Father accepted his sacrifice on behalf of sinners, like it would have been rejected. He would have stayed dead if he had sinned even once. So clearly Jesus is not like everybody else who came to be baptized by John, repenting of their sins and picturing a cleansing from their sins because Jesus had none. I also don't think, as some have suggested, that Jesus is just endorsing John's ministry, giving John's ministry like a stamp of approval in the people's eyes. Because remember, the whole point of John's ministry is to point to Jesus, to affirm Jesus. It's not the other way around. I also don't think that this is just Jesus setting an example for us. Like, hey, look at how Jesus was baptized. Therefore, new covenant believer, you also should be baptized. You should follow him in baptism. And the reason I say that is because like I said two weeks ago, John's baptism is not the same thing as what we picture when we think of baptism. It's completely different. 
right? John's baptism is the believer is the believer saying, "I need to repent in preparation for the Messiah." Our baptism, right, the baptisms that we do, that's the believer identifying with Jesus' death and resurrection. They're two separate things. They're not interchangeable. And we know they're not interchangeable because in Acts chapter 19, when Paul runs into those guys who had only had John's baptism, what does he tell them to do? He tells them to get baptized. So it doesn't make sense then to say that Jesus was baptized as an example for us to be baptized because these are two separate baptisms. So it's not that Jesus is repenting. It's not that Jesus is just validating John's ministry. It's not that Jesus is just setting an example of baptism for us. So then what is it? The most common view is that by being baptized, Jesus is identifying with his people. He's taking his place with the sinners he came to save. With those who were submitting to John's baptism of repentance, anticipating his saving work. And so he's not repenting of his own sins through this baptism, but he's identifying with sinners who have signified their need for him by undergoing John's baptism. Look at Jesus' response to John's hesitancy to baptize him, Matthew 3.15 Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And so fulfill all righteousness, well, that refers to Jesus identifying with his people through this baptism, perfectly keeping the law on behalf of his people. You ask most Christians what Jesus came to do, And they'll tell you correctly that he came to die for our sins. But that's only part of the story, right? Uh, The other part, a crucially important part that we can't forget, that we can't leave out, is that he came to live a perfectly righteous life on our behalf. Like if the only thing that Jesus came to do was to die in place of sinners for our sins— and then in theory, he could have come down as a fully grown, like, adult God-man. He could have said a couple of things about who he was that would have gotten him in trouble with the Jewish authorities. He could have been crucified and resurrected and ascended back to the right hand of the Father. Like, why go through all this trouble with the incarnation and the childhood and the 30 years of obscurity in the town of Nazareth if we could have just skipped right to the penal substitutionary atonement on the cross? The answer is that in his birth, in his infancy, in his childhood, in his adolescence, in his adulthood, Jesus lived the perfect righteous life that sinners have failed to live. Theologians will call that the active obedience of Jesus. It's this idea that at every stage of his life, Jesus lived a perfect life always keeping the law, always doing his Father's will, never once sinning, his active obedience on behalf of sinners. And so it's not just that Jesus dies for the sins of his elect, although he does die for the sins of his elect, praise God. And it's not just that he propitiates the wrath of God for the sins of his people, though he does propitiate the wrath of God for the sins of his people, praise God. It's also that he lives a perfect life on their behalf 
that is then imputed onto them. And so on the cross, we have what theologians will call double imputation. There's two different imputations going on here. One is our sin being imputed to Jesus. And so he suffers the wrath of God in the place of those who would believe. And the other is that his perfect righteous life is imputed to us so that we who believe might be seen as perfectly righteous in God's eyes. So 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's not just that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. It's that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's the imputation of our sin onto Jesus. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the imputation of his righteousness onto sinners. And so it's that imputation of righteousness that Jesus is talking about when he says it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus is baptized in identification with his people. But I don't think that's what's going on here. Now don't hear me wrong. I do think that Jesus identifies with his people. He had to be made like his brothers in every way. And I do think that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And I do think that through his death, Jesus imputes his perfect righteous record onto sinners. Like, I believe all of those things are true. I just don't think that that's the reason why he's being baptized. I can't be dogmatic about this because the the text doesn't definitively say this is not the reason why Jesus got baptized. But here's the thing. It's not like be baptized is a command for believers in the law that Jesus had to undergo in order to fully keep the law for his people. That's why he was circumcised. Because circumcision was required under the law. But that's not why he was baptized. Like, it's unclear to me how the baptism fulfills all righteousness. Like, what requirement of righteousness is Jesus fulfilling on behalf of his people by undergoing John's baptism? And it's not clear to me, uh, either theologically or biblically, why Jesus had to be baptized by John in order to identify with his people, in order to take his place with them. I mean, consider the fact that there were probably many disciples of Jesus who were never baptized by John, given how early on in Jesus' ministry, John is imprisoned. The identifying with his people theory, I think it's interesting. I think it probably has some merit. But I think there's got to be something more going on here. And the answer lies in the rest of the passage. But before we get to the rest of the passage, just point out one more thing about the baptism itself. Uh, Jesus' baptism is one of those events that all four gospel writers record for us. But there's one detail about the baptism that only Luke includes. Look again at verse 21. When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. It shouldn't be surprising to us that Jesus was praying. And he was always praying. He's praying without ceasing. But Luke goes out of his way to point out a detail that Matthew, Mark, and John leave out here. 
And that's just like Luke, as we'll see in the months to come. Luke constantly portrays Jesus as a man of prayer. Like, he particularly emphasizes it. So, for example, he's the only gospel writer who, when writing about Jesus calling the disciples, tells us that the previous night, Jesus had been praying. And he's the only gospel writer who tells us what Jesus was doing when he was transfigured. He was praying. Now, the point of this narrative is not prayer, that Jesus was in constant, continual communion with God in this way. But I point it out here because Luke points it out here. I think it's something that should be convicting for many of us. We who go through so much of life just relying on our own ability to make decisions, relying on our own experience, intellect, understanding. Like Luke really didn't have to look too hard into Jesus' life to be able to write a lot about his prayer life. But what would Luke write about us? Would he have anything to write? But like I said, this passage is not about prayer. And this passage isn't really about baptism either. Look carefully again at the verse and listen to how I read it, what I'm emphasizing as I read it. Now, when all the people were being baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying— the smart people refer to those as uh, subordinate clauses. What is a subordinate clause? We've got Santa Claus. He's the boss of Christmas. And everybody who works for him is a subordinate clause. No, a, a subordinate clause is a part of a sentence that's dependent on the main clause of the sentence. Translation, everything that we've talked about so far in our passage, including the fact that Jesus was baptized— is subordinate in terms of the emphasis of the sentence to what's about to happen. It's like, while everybody was being baptized, and while Jesus himself was baptized, and while Jesus was praying, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended, and there came a voice from heaven. Like, that's the main emphasis of the sentence. That's where Luke is drawing our attention. Which tells us, perhaps, that this holds the answer to our first question. The heavens were opened. And by the way, anytime you see that, uh, you'll know that something big is about to happen. There's some revelation, some act of God by which he's directly intervening or entering into his creation. Isaiah 64, 1, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Well, that's exactly what God does in this instance. Right? It's the Holy Spirit who comes down on the just-baptized Jesus in this visible manifestation, right? descending on Jesus like a dove. But if you're a careful reader, you say, wait a minute. Like Jesus, didn't he already have the Spirit? Like without measure? Even before this? You remember what the angel Gabriel said all the way back in chapter 1, verse 35? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Like the Holy Spirit was actively involved in the incarnation, and really, Jesus' whole life has been empowered by the Holy Spirit, and so he's been able to live a sinlessly perfect life for 30 years to this point. And so why does the Holy Spirit descend here on Jesus in this visible manifestation? So there's your second question. 
Why does the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus? And remember, we still have our first question, which we haven't answered. Why was Jesus baptized? But now I think we can answer both questions together because I think the two answers to the two questions are closely related. Let's start with the second question. Why does the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus? Well, it's because this is a visible manifestation. The Spirit comes down upon him in a special, manifest, visible way. Not because Jesus doesn't already have the Spirit, but so that John the Baptist and all those watching might know that Jesus is the Son of God, consecrated for the ministry of the Messiah. I mean, think about it. We, the reader, we've already read Luke chapter 1, and we've already read Luke chapter 2. We know all about who Jesus is and what he's come to do already. Like, like we know what Gabriel told Mary, that Jesus would reign on David's throne forever. And we know what the angels told the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we know what Zechariah and Simeon and Anna, what they all said, that God's salvation was now here in Jesus. But think about it. All of those instances were either private or limited in audience. And so the people at large did not know who he was because Jesus had been hidden in the obscurity of Nazareth for 30 years. He didn't look like the Messiah. He looked like any other Jewish guy. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And so even John, even John the Baptist, didn't truly realize who he was. Listen to what he says, John 1.33, I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, this is how you're going to know it's him. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. You see that? The visible descent of the Holy Spirit was the confirmation that John the Baptist and presumably those around him, the confirmation to them that this is indeed the Son of God. This is the the visible confirmation that proved to them that Jesus was the one prophesied of in Isaiah. Isaiah 61.1. This is a verse that Jesus would later quote in talking about himself. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. The Old Testament says that when the Messiah comes, the Holy Spirit is going to anoint him. And so here, the Holy Spirit visibly anoints Jesus so that John and all around him could see that this is indeed the Messiah. So question number two, why does the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus? Answer, it's a public anointing. Here's how Peter summarized this event many years later, Acts chapter 10. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And so now, I think we're ready to go back to question number one. Why was Jesus baptized? Specifically, Why was Jesus baptized with John's baptism? I was really struggling with this question back and forth this week. 
And the breakthrough for me came when I realized that John's baptism wasn't just a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, although that is how it's described. It's primarily a baptism of preparation. In this case, preparation for the Messiah who was to come and what he was going to do. Now that preparatory baptism for everybody else requires repentance. And so for them, it's a baptism of repentance because sinners must repent of their sins and seek God's mercy to prepare themselves for him. But Jesus, as we said earlier, Jesus requires no repentance. And so for him and him alone, John's preparatory baptism is not about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It's about his preparation for his ministry. Specifically, it's preparation for his ministry as our great high priest. Now, Jesus is not a Levitical priest. We're not going to get into all the details of that, but you can read all about that in the book of Hebrews. Uh, He's what we call a, a Melchizedekian priest. But all priests, whether Levitical or Melchizedekian, all priests must be appointed. That's exactly what it says in Hebrews chapter 5. No one, Hebrews chapter 5 verses 4 and 5, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And remember, Aaron is a Levitical high priest. So also, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So question, how was Aaron, when he was called by God, how was a Levitical priest set apart and consecrated for the task of being a high priest? It was through a preparatory washing and anointing. And that's written about in extensive detail in Exodus chapter 29. Levitical priests must be washed, and they must be anointed before they can serve to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law for them. Well, in the same way, Jesus is set apart consecrated by God for the task of being our great high priest, a Melchizedekian high priest. But Hebrews 5, 5, he does not exalt himself. He does not consecrate himself. He does not anoint himself. He can't because Hebrews 5, 4, no one takes this honor for himself. And so now we see how it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness for John to baptize Jesus so that Jesus might be set apart by God for this office and then anointed by the Holy Spirit as a visible sign of this ordination. And so Jesus undergoes a washing. That's the baptism of John. And he undergoes an anointing. That's the Holy Spirit descending upon him for his consecration by God to be the great high priest of his people. And so now we can answer question number one. Why was Jesus baptized? 
I think we ought to see it as a consecration to begin his public ministry as the great high priest of his people. Jesus' baptism is his public appointment. It's this revelation to the world that he is going to serve his people as their great high priest. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, I know that a lot of what I've just said so far is pretty complicated. A lot about priests and anointings and washings. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, a lot of that is going to be confusing. And so let me just boil it down to the basics. In the Old Testament, priests would stand between God and his people. They would make sacrifices on behalf of the people to God in order to atone for their sins. But here's the thing. Uh, the priests themselves were sinners. And so before they could make sacrifices for the people's sins, they had to first make sacrifices for their own sins. Furthermore, all of those sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, could never take away sins. All of it, the whole system pointed to a need for something greater. And that something greater is Jesus. He is our great high priest. Uh, This is a ministry that I'm arguing was commissioned and ordained at his baptism and with the anointing of the Spirit. But, here's the key for us, his ministry is entirely different from the Old Testament priests because he is the perfect Son of God. He never sinned, and so he doesn't have to atone for his own sins first. And he gives himself Not the blood of bulls and goats, but that of the spotless Lamb of God as the full sacrificial atonement for our sins. And in exchange, as we discussed earlier, we get his perfect righteousness. But his high priestly ministry doesn't end there because he resurrected and he ascended to the right hand of the Father to live forevermore. And so before the throne of God above We always have one, whoever lives and pleads for us. Listen to this exhortation from Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, as a result, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is baptized. He is anointed. He is commissioned as our great high priest. And you say, well, so what? What's that got to do with me? Why is it? believer, that you can draw near to the throne of grace? Why is it, child of God, that you can be confident that your sins are actually, finally, completely forgiven? Why is it, dear saints, that you can be assured that you will indeed persevere to the end? 
Is it not the ministry of our great high priest, Jesus Christ? Why was Jesus baptized? And why did the Holy Spirit come upon him? It's to mark him out as the great high priest for his people. But that's not the end of the story. One more thing happens here, and we still have one more question to answer. Look at the end of verse 22. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. God the Father speaks audibly here. So by the way, what we have here is all three persons of the Godhead appearing simultaneously in this one narrative. You've got God the Father speaking as his voice from heaven. You've got God the Son being baptized. And you've got God the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. Wonderful a Trinitarian passage. But now let's think about what God the Father says. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Question number three, why does God the Father say what he says? Well, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, you might recognize a few familiar phrases. You are my son. That reminds us of the second psalm. A royal psalm. A kingly psalm. A psalm about how the Messiah would rule over all. The Lord said to me, you are my son. But it's not just my son. It's my beloved son, And there's hints there of Genesis chapter 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac. God tells Abraham to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And you'll remember in that story when Isaac asks his father, where is the sacrificial lamb for the offering? Abraham answers, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And indeed, in that story, God does provide a sacrifice to take the place of Isaac. And then we've got this last phrase, with you I am well pleased. That's an echo of Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. That verse begins the first of four songs in Isaiah about the suffering servant. So now, let's put those three references together. You've got the messianic king from Psalm chapter 2 who would rule and reign over God's people forever. You've got the sacrificial lamb foreshadowed in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham said, God himself is going to provide the lamb. And you've got the suffering servant from Isaiah chapter 42 the same suffering servant who would, later in the book, Isaiah chapter 53, be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. God the Father is saying, that's who this is. This is the Son of God who is 
the long-awaited messianic king, who is the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, who is the suffering servant upon whom the Lord would lay the iniquity of us all. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And so in one sense, this is the father's testimony of who Jesus is. But I think it's more than that. Because look carefully at your text. This isn't just God the Father speaking to the crowds in general, telling them about Jesus. This is God the Father speaking to Jesus. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus knows that he is the son of God. The angel Gabriel told that to his mother before he was even conceived. The child to be born shall be called holy, the son of God. And remember from chapter 2, how 12-year-old Jesus fully realizes who he is as the son of God. And so he says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But... Even with that knowledge, this must have been a uniquely special moment in Jesus' life. As he hears this dramatic and unforgettable divine confirmation of who he is, proclaimed by a voice from heaven, one of only three times that the Father speaks to Jesus audibly in this way, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so at the very outset of his mission, at the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus hears words that he's going to have to remember for the rest of his life here on earth. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Why? Well, because he, there would come a day as Jesus goes to the cross to die for the sins of his people, to fulfill the mission for which he was sent down from heaven. When he's hanging upon that cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was silence. Silence not because the father has ceased loving the son. You are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. That would always be true. But silence because in that moment, the son had taken upon himself all the sin and all the unrighteousness of his people. Sinners like me and like you. And how important must it have been in that moment for Jesus to know that he was the beloved son with whom the father is well pleased. To remember the joy that was set before him, that he might despise the shame. To remember what he came to do. To remember who he was, what his mission was, to seek and save God's lost. To remember those words, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Because there was silence 
from heaven as the Father poured out his wrath for sin upon the Son. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Just think about that. God, the Father, crushed his beloved Son in whom he was well pleased. Why? First John 4.10 And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the love of God for his people. And because he loved us, he crushed his beloved son with whom he was well pleased. Amazing love. How can it be? So question number three, why does God the Father say what he says? It's not only a public affirmation and endorsement of Jesus as the Messiah, sacrifice, suffering servant to the world. It's also an affirmation and endorsement of Jesus to Jesus, of who he is and what he's come to do. His mission as the savior of his people. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased And that leads to what perhaps is the most wonderful and amazing truth in the universe. Which is that if you're in Christ, if you are united to Christ, the same is true of you. You are God's beloved son, God's beloved daughter. And in you, he is well pleased. Because Jesus has paid for your sin, because Jesus has given you his perfect righteousness, because of double imputation, because of the gospel, because for all who have received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Friend, you, if you're in Christ, are God's beloved son, God's beloved daughter, in you, with you, he is well pleased. Brothers and sisters, it's only when we understand that glorious truth that we can truly be freed from this ever-present snare of works righteousness. Thinking that we have to do this, and we have to do that, and we have to do this, and we have to do that to actually be well-pleasing to our Father All that vain striving is replaced by a joyful rest in Christ, a joyful rest from our works, only when we realize that you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, is actually true about us in Christ. So that was a lot. Just to recap, question number one, why was Jesus baptized? Jesus was baptized as a consecration to begin his public ministry as the great high priest of his people. And we must look to him as our great high priest for all of our confidence and assurance that we can actually draw near to God. 
And question number two, why did the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus? Well, it was a visible, public anointing to that office of great high priest. And question number three, why does God the Father say what he says? It's an affirmation. It's an endorsement, both to the world and to Jesus himself, of who he is and what he came to do as the Son of God, who is the Messiah, who is the Lamb of God, who is the suffering servant. Lots to think about. And hopefully as you meditate on these things, the result will be a greater love for our great high priest. I'm going to ask that you would take the next few moments to pray and meditate silently, and then I will bring us together and close us in prayer. Father, we approach you now in the name of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Whoever lives and intercedes for us, Father, we praise you for the gospel. That because of the intercessory work of Jesus on our behalf, we can draw near to you. That because of our union with Christ, we who believe can know that we are your children and that you are in Christ pleased with us. Father, we pray that you would give a great and deep assurance to your people of that glorious truth. Amen.